Today we are going to talk about Dave's Picks Volume 42, February 23rd, 1974 at Winterland. This is a somewhat delayed show because I had serious mail delays in getting this CD, but that's okay. So this album, this is the second release of this year. For those of you who don't know, Dave's Picks, uh, Dave Lemieux. David Lemieux is the archival manager of The Grateful Dead. He puts out four archival releases per year, plus usually a box set on top of that. But the Dave's Pick series, now in its 42nd volume, you get one quarterly, basically. And this one, this Winterland show from 74, they announced that they were going to be releasing this show quite early. Uh, Last fall, they announced that this was going to be the release. And so I've been excited about it for a long time um, because I'll admit, I'm, I have not explored a ton of 74 Dead, but I know that a lot of people really love it. Had you listened to much 74 Dead before this release? No, not a lot. Um, and it's kind of when people list, you know, on social media and, and Twitter, when people start talking about like the best tours, air quote, Europe 72 is, is always, you know, one or two, but people talk about 77... And then Spring 74 always seems to be in that list, and it's never a list that I've dove into. For me, I I think maybe I've listened to some later 74 stuff, but yeah, I had not really dove in. It was kind of a mystery for me before this show. I knew that a lot of people talk about the jazz forward style that the band had kind of picked up on later in this year. You can get a little bit of that in this show, but it's not an especially jazzy show. It's just a a good show, just a good, solid Grateful Dead show. So should we start things off with The Days Between? It's been a while. Let's do it. I don't remember who went first last time. Would you like to go first this time? <laughs> it's been so long. Well, I've got a lot to talk about. Um, the end of April was a big music week for myself and my family and my area, Columbia, South Carolina. I got to go see Goose live in Asheville, North Carolina. And uh, for those who know Goose, they're the best like modern jam band that's still putting out new music like they're the best up-and-coming jam band on the scene right now agree um there's like a small sect of grateful dead twitter that's like raise your hand if you still haven't listened to goose I'm like, what <laughs> what is wrong with you people so i'm in Asheville. excellent fantastic it was a venue of like 1500 people it's one of those things where you're gonna look back in 10 years when they're selling out stadiums and stuff and being like, yeah, I saw him at a brewery in Asheville and I was standing on gravel for two and a half hours. It was great. Um, my parents saw the Eagles on their farewell tour in the same week. And, uh, Elton John came to Columbia, South Carolina in the same week. I didn't go see him, but I had a coworker who went and saw him. So big week for music in, in this area. Some other things in the days between my younger sister graduated college today about four hours ago so congrats emily and then what's been going on for a lot of the days between and the days to come uh my cousin ryan 
old Uncle Kyle's eldest son, is biking across the United States of America. Um, they started with their back tire of their bikes in the water in San Diego, California. And the plan is to end in about a month, month and a half's time with the front tire in the water in Virginia Beach. Um, but they're not just doing it to have fun. They're doing it to raise money for Wasatch Adaptive Sports. Um, Adaptive Sports is a fantastic organization that helps uh, disabled and handicapped, handicapable people around the United States you know, engage in outdoor activities, be it hiking, biking, skiing in the winter, um, all that stuff. So to raise money for the, the program, my cousin Ryan is biking across the country and they just left Oklahoma City this morning. So they're making good time. They're about at the halfway point. Um, and if you want to donate, if this sounds like something that you can get behind and donate, uh, please do. They're you can find all that information on their Instagram account. It's three guys, one bike, the number three guys, the number one bike, all with underscores in between. They document their journey basically daily on Instagram. So you can see all the fun times they're having, all the interesting places they've gotten to sleep at um, and try to camp under. And you can donate to their cause if you think that that's a, something that you'd like to do. So yeah, three guys, one bike, shout out to cousin Ryan and, uh, Keep on trucking. You're halfway there, man. Keep on trucking. Well, that yeah, that's all very cool. So in the days between, my wife and I took a honeymoon. We went to Portugal, which was very, really cool, very beautiful country. And it was cool to be there during Europe 72, during the overlap, because we've been listening to all of the Europe 72 shows, you and I. And something that I think that I've heard before, I don't know if it was on the good old Grateful Dead cast or one of the books that I've read, but one thing that Jerry in particular was apparently very interested in in Europe 72 was the idea of them playing for audiences that couldn't understand the words. Right. It would make the sound quality be that much more important. Right. Basically the notion of like the music needs to like stand on its own because they need to be able to feel something from this, even if they don't understand the words that we're singing and does the music kind of transcend language. And that idea really intrigued. I think all of the guys in the band, but maybe Jerry in particular, at least at that time in 1974. So it was cool to be there and, you know, hearing all of these languages that I, I couldn't really understand, you know, whether it's people walking around and speaking French or Portuguese, obviously. I also got to see a show while I was there. There's a Portuguese traditional music, traditional like concert dinner experience called Fado, F-A-D-O where it is a like an old kind of teardrop-shaped guitar, a regular guitar, and then a singer who's just like belting it out, singing these very somber, sad songs while you're eating dinner. It was really, really cool, a very unique experience to have. And I didn't understand anything that they were saying, and yet I totally understood what they were saying, <laughs> you know? Um, you hear, you pick up on like a word here or there, and it's just like... Uh, it's just really, really cool. And so while I was listening to that, I was thinking about the Grateful Dead, whether they were playing in, you know, Germany or the Netherlands, Denmark, uh, the Denmark show in particular, Bob's like, how many of you can hear us or how many of you can understand what we're saying? Let's have a show of hands. Um, and so it just kind of was a visceral reminder for me that music really can transcend. Um, and so, yeah, it was really cool. I'm really glad that we got to go. Came back, got COVID at the end of the experience in Portugal, despite having all of my vaccinations and an extra booster shot. So that has not been fun. 
but I'm sure many of you have gone through it as well and uh, you you know where I'm at. So if my voice sounds a little bit different, that's probably why. Anyway, got that out of the way. That's the, the downer <laughs> and now it's all uh, uphill from here. So let's get on with the show. Saturday, February 23rd, 1974 at Winterland. This was only the second show of 1974. Um, 1974 was the only year, one of the only years that they didn't play a New Year's show. They, Hmm. you know, it's kind of odd. I don't really know why that that was the case, but, but it wasn't. This was one month to the day before the completed Wall of Sound made its touring debut at the Cow Palace. Uh, if you want to hear that show, see Dick's Picks Volume 24. So what, what's going on in the world in February of 1974? The top album in the land, Bob Dylan and the band Planet Waves. This was Dylan's first number one album, um, hmm. which is kind of interesting. The number one selling album of the year, actually, was 1973's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. So, yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah, just an absolute stone cold (laughs) classic. It was never it never hit number one during 1974 because it had been released in 73. Well, yeah, but it was just remarkably consistent all year. One thing I thought was interesting. Elton John's greatest hits was number one for the last five weeks of 1974, which is crazy Hmm. because he only had like four albums out at the time. But all of them had They're like just five hits. monster hits. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Elton John, I mean, awesome. Also, if any of you are looking for a good music book to read, check out Elton John's book, Me, I think it's called. It's amazing. And there's a great Grateful Dead anecdote in it, which I won't step on. But um, yeah, that's toward the end of the book. So what else was happening in music around this time? This is three days after the release of Pretzel Logic, Steely Dan's third album, uh, with the lead single, Ricky Don't Lose That Number, maybe their biggest hit. Um, great song, great album. And also, three days after the release of Kiss's debut album, self-titled. So they were kind of breaking onto the scene. Uh, like The Grateful Dead, a legendary live act, uh, but for very different reasons. It's also one week before the release of Rush's self-titled debut album, Rush Rush. Um, and... ABBA's Waterloo, their second album, and their first one that had a monster hit on it, the song Waterloo. That's the song that won them the Eurovision Song Contest in 1974 Ah. and really led to them, you know, launching Launching the stratosphere. Um, So a lot kind of happening with, you know, legendary bands around this time. The top Billboard song, Barbara Streisand, The Way We Were. So lots going on in music as there always is and was. Um, (laughs) The number one movie in the land was The Exorcist, which was, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, it stayed on the top of the charts pretty much all winter. It was eventually unseated by The Sting, an absolute classic. And then that was unseated by Blazing Saddles, which was released Mm. on February 7th, just a few weeks before this show. February 23rd, lots of famous birthdays. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, that's a good one. Yankee legend Elston Howard. First black player in Yankee history, retired number uh, for the Yanks. Great catcher. Johnny Winter, musical, I wouldn't Mm -hmm. say maybe legend, but I mean, kind of. The tier right below, yeah. Some modern modern characters, Josh Gad, 
and Emily Blunt in the acting mm. world. Uh, rapper Absol. Basketball player Jamal Murray of my beloved... There you go. Nuggets. Nugs, yep. Yep, and the current emperor of Japan, uh, Naruhito, who is he was born on this date in the 1960s. And because it's his birthday, uh, February 23rd is a holiday in Japan. Nice. Famous deaths, John Quincy Adams and Boom. John Keats. That's that's what I had there. So February 3rd, interesting. February 23rd, excuse me. Interesting, interesting date. All right, so 1974, the year for the Grateful Dead. As I said, kind of a mysterious year for me. I hadn't dove all the way in. Wake of the Flood was released in October 1973, and so those songs are now fully integrated into the band's live repertoire. Um, That was the first album that was released on Grateful Dead Records, and so they learned a lot of lessons from that release. I think the main one is how much it was pirated and sold like bootlegs were sold and so from the mars hotel was their second release on grateful dead records it came out a couple months after this concert and i i think that the main difference with how they released that one as from what i've read is that they had like a watermark on the album um so that they could tell Mm, which ones were authentic which is kind of cool uh the grateful dead uh, records experience is it was a fraught one um, for those of you who haven't read about it they had a lot of trouble with that record label and I think in the end probably regretted launching it but they did sell a lot of records as I said from the Mars Hotel would be coming they would record that in April but a lot of those songs were already in the mix at this point we get Ship of Fools the second time they'd ever played it during this show uh, US Blues and Loose Lucy were both played the prior night so they had a lot of those songs kind of in the mix at this point. There are also some songs on that album that just really never got played live. Um, Pride of Cucamonga comes to mind. Um, they, there, there were some that just kind of didn't click in the live act, as there were for most of their albums. You know, there were some that just didn't really fit with their uh, live repertoire. Only 40 Grateful Dead shows. Um, in 1974, you could tell that they're kind of getting tired getting ready for the hiatus that would begin in that, that October, but a busy year. Nonetheless, jerrybase.com has 262 events for Jerry Garcia that year, including recording sessions for, um, from the Mars hotel and his second solo album compliments, which is also sometimes called Garcia, but so is his first album. So kind of tough um so that made it kind of a busy year it was also an extremely busy year for the grateful dead's road crew because as i said the wall of sound was unveiled in march of 1974 and i mean that made this just a monumental year as far as setting up breaking down being ready to you know get ahead of the band on the road to set up Mm -hmm. you know parts of the wall of sound and then i mean i just can't even imagine you see pictures of it and it's just it's insane and the fact that you know that doesn't just magically appear people have to (laughs) set it all up um which is just brutal do you think that contributed to like the lack not the lack of shows the lower number of shows like an extra 24 to 48 hours to set this behemoth up yeah i definitely i could definitely see that i mean because they didn't want to kill their road crew those are their buds right (laughs) you know um so uh, yeah, the, the Wall of Sound, again, unveiled in March. There was a June tour around, like, all throughout the Pacific time zone in the U.S. and Canada. 
Then in June, they went like later in June, they went back on the road from uh, Des Moines eastward at that very end of June, beginning of July. And then they had an honest to God summer tour around the Northeast and mid Atlantic and a brief European tour in the fall uh, before five nights at Winterland in October that closed out the band's early seventies and one drummer time. Mickey rejoined the band for the last night, but this is the end of one drummer dead because after the hiatus in 55 and part of parts of 50, excuse me, 55, 75 and parts of 74 and 76, um, Mickey rejoined the band in earnest and we get to an- yet another amazing period in Grateful Dead music in the late 70s. Lots of live releases from 74. This is the sixth Dave's pick and the third bonus disc. The second Dave's picks of the year always comes with a bonus disc for subscribers to the series. Dave and I both subscribed, so we both got the bonus disc. And so lots of Dave's Picks coverage from this year. There's also been a box set, a Road Trips, and three Dick's Picks that have come out from 1974. So if you are a 74 head, there's ample opportunities to, to buy the you know some official archival releases from, from 74. Um, I should say the bonus disc is from the night before, February 22nd. And one of the other six Dave's Picks is the night after this, February 24th. This this show and this run was not part of a tour, really. It was just the first weekend of shows that the band had played this year. And, um, you know, they, like I said, they didn't even play New Year's shows at the end of 73. These three shows actually were a fundraiser for, do you know? I don't know. No. <laughs> for Keith and Donna to buy their first home. <laughs> um, that is a real thing. So... I think that that's really interesting for a number of reasons. Number one, it's interesting that they had been in the band for three-ish, two, and two a half? full yeah. years, yeah, um, and they didn't have enough money to to put a down payment on a house, which is, I mean, that's kind of crazy. I don't know if that is, you know, the band certainly wasn't massive the way they would become in the time to come. Number one, but number two, I mean, I think that just shows how much live like music musicians and artists made at that time but the other thing is that's kind of noble of the rest of the band that they were like yeah let's throw three shows and we'll use the money so that you guys can buy a house because you're you know our our buds and there's in the middle of the um the liner notes the middle two pages it shows a lot of stuff on grateful dead publishing like stationery and one of them is the breakdown of how much money the net profit they expected to make from this weekend. It was about thirty thousand uh, dollars, which you know in today's day that's plenty to put a down payment on a decent house. Maybe not in San Francisco, but um, <laughs> back then certainly more than enough to put a nice down payment, and take a huge chunk off of their mortgage, or maybe even I mean I don't know what house prices were in nineteen seventy four. They might have been able to buy something outright. Um, in today's day and age, not even close, no. <laughs> but back then, maybe, I mean, I don't know. So, I mean, that's kind of interesting. The Winterland, um, the venue, Winterland, AKA Winterland Ballroom, AKA Winterland Arena. Um, it was opened in 1928 as the new Dreamland Auditorium ice skating rink, and it would be converted into a seated entertainment venue, or it could be converted into a seated entertainment venue. So kind of a multi-purpose arena. The name was changed to Winterland in the 1930s, and then in 1966, it began hosting concerts with Bill Graham regularly renting the arena so that he could host 
larger acts that the Fillmore couldn't hold at that point in time. So after he closed the Fillmore West in 71, Bill Graham began hosting regular weekend shows at Winterland. So it would be one of his main venues. Uh, Pretty much everyone played there, but some notables. This is where The Last Waltz was, was taped, if you're a fan of the band. That was on Thanksgiving Day, 1976. Parts of Frampton Comes Alive were recorded at Winterland. Led Zeppelin first performed Whole Lot of Love at Whole Lot of Love, excuse me, at Winterland, and this was also the venue of the Sex Pistols' last show in January of 1978. I think more importantly for our audience, more relevant to us, this was basically the Dead's home base for most of mm-hmm. the 70s. Um, it's their second most frequently played venue. Um, they played here 60 times, which trails only the Oakland Coliseum. And surprising to me, it was just ahead of the Philly Spectrum, which is their their third most played venue, 53 times between 1968 and 1995. I think that that's why that they could play there over the course of almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. That'll do it. This was the, you know, the venue for the Steal Your Face record and also the Grateful Dead movie that was filmed over the course of that five night run in October that I mentioned was kind of the send off before the hiatus, their last shows billed as the last Grateful Dead shows. They also performed the closing of this venue on New Year's Eve 78 and New Year's Day 79, a legendary show. The entire thing is available on YouTube. Go check it out. They went on stage at midnight and played until like 530 AM. It's uh, just a you know great playing and it's really cool. Um, one thing from that show is there's like a halftime show with Mickey and Bobby where they're talking about what the venue meant to them and things like that. And one thing that Mickey says is he's like, yeah, this place just has a lot of character. You know, there's sometimes when pieces of the ceiling would fall off while we were playing cause we would play so loud. And, uh, <laughs> Bill just gave us backstage like a piece of the ceiling that we knocked off in a frame and said like, you guys are the best, um, which I think is kind of cool. Uh, someone on the dead.net forums agrees. Seabum48 says Phil's base used to shake loose parts of the ceiling. Quote, I thought it was snowing once. <laughs> um, so kind of a, a quirky <laughs> venue. Uh, so this is the fifth release from Winterland. You got Dick's Picks 10. Dave's Picks 13, which again is from the following night, February 24th, 1974. Two Winterland box sets, one from 73, one from 77. And Road Trips Volume 1, number 4. So lots of the 60 shows that the dead played here have been released in full and i guarantee that there are more to come the album art for this this show it's really cool this is the same artist in residence that we talked about for the uh dave's picks volume 41 so it's consistent the artwork will look somewhat consistent throughout the year throughout the four releases but it's just i mean i think a really cool album cover so it is the outside facade and you know front of of winterland and then you have that's on the right side of the album cover on the left side you have one of those you know classic san francisco homes um like like the one in the hate ashbury that the dead lived in and then the streets are you know totally flooded in water and there's a giant like pirate ship uh, that is kind of sailing into town with the wall of sound on it because a lot of the wall of sound had been constructed and, and was being used for this concert. Not the full thing, but a lot of it. 
And then in the background, you have some, you have the sun rising up, like here comes sunshine, which we'll talk about during set one. And the clouds overhead are shaped kind of like the Grateful Dead lightning bolt. So really, really cool album cover. There are a couple of little Easter eggs, I think, in here. Um, one of them is that the the flag on the top of the crow's nest of the ship has the Steel Your Face logo on it. And the other thing is that the skeleton who is captaining the ship, when you get to the bonus disc, it is basically a zoomed-in picture of that. It's a close-up of that captain skeleton with the wall of sound around him. So I didn't notice that there's actually a guy on the ship at first. And then when you see the bonus disc, it's like, oh, that's cool. It's like they zoomed in um, even closer, which is kind of cool because the bonus disc is, it's not like the full set one from 222. It's just kind of like an amalgam of the songs that they really liked. Anything else, Dave, before we get into the, the music? No. All righty. Let's get into it. Without any further ado, from Marin County, the great, great, grateful dead. Well, the John was jumping, going round and round. Hey, reeling and rocking, what a crazy sound. Although they never stopped rocking, till the moon went down. Well, it sounds so sweet. So, this show is about three and a half hours long. Nice, nice length. A pretty songy first set, and then uh, just a powerful second set. So, they begin the show, somewhat uniquely, with Around and Around, Chuck Berry cover. They played this song 423 times, but only four times as a show opener. This was the first of three in 1974. So, not a common occurrence that this song would kick things off. But it, I mean, it kicked things off right. Nice high energy start, <laughs> gets the people going, and uh, Bob sounds good. So, I mean, I, I don't have a ton to, to say about Around and Around. We've heard it on this show before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a song the dead played a lot. But, I mean, I, I liked it as a show opener. It's a unique way to, to kick things off. Yeah, it, it hits differently as an opener um, in a good way because of the high energy. Um, One thing I'll add, Keith in the second half of this song just blew me away with his piano playing. And just note that because that's going to be kind of a preview of the whole show is how well Keith was playing on piano. I, knowing now that it's because he needed money for a house, (laughs) it, it makes sense why he was playing that good. But Keith in the second half of the song really, really stand out. And uh, that's going to just kind of be the common theme for the rest of the show. Absolutely. From Around and Around, they go into Dire Wolf, a, sh- a song that I really like. Um, but like a lot of the song, like a lot of the songs from Working Man's and American Beauty, they're recorded so well on the album that they're not songs that I really like seek out live versions and think like, oh man, I, I really hope that I get to hear a live dire wolf. Like it's, it's a song that I adore, but that's not really why I love it because of the nuances that they put on it, the differences of how they play it night to night. This was a pretty slow tempoed version, uh, which is, is noticeable coming out of the pretty energetic around and around. But I do, as you were saying on Around and Around, I love the flourishes that Keith is putting on this song in the piano. 
it adds something more ornate to a song that sounds like it's a campfire song. Um, I mean, not just there, is there a lyric while the boys sing around the fire that kind of is evocative of that feeling, but it just sounds like that. The, the, like the story that he's telling, um, it starts with in the timbers of Fenario. It's like, okay, well it's people in the woods, you know? Um, but yeah, I thought this was a, a, a good version. Bob is really assertive with what he's doing on the rhythm guitar and it, it's cool. It's like a perfect fit for the campfire vibes. It would be like if there was, you know, you're leading the song and you're singing around the campfire, but then you've got someone else on a second guitar who's just adding some rhythm and, you know, cooking on the side. So I thought that that added a lot and just overall a good version of a song that I really like. Yeah. And, and Phil's presence and power at the, like the big crescendo around the four minute mark. It's a, a handsome exclamation point on on a song that usually has like a jovial jest, you know, like a kind of a ha-ha vibe the whole time. But there, this is like a slow and sad version that fit well after the boogie dance opener of Around and Around. Yeah, giddy direness was the way that uh, someone right, d- right. described a show from the 90s. Um, not for this song, but this song has that. It's giddily dire. And not just because Dyer's in the title. <laughs> but but this version is like more melancholy. And yeah. A little more visceral, I guess, with the lyrics. Mm-hmm. But it, it was a good change of pace. Yeah, I agree. Next song, Me and Bobby McGee, a Chris Christopherson cover. I think the most famous version is Janis Joplin's version of Me and Bobby McGee. But um, I like Bob. I like the way Bob sings it. Uh, the vocals get completely lost in the middle of the song. They just go away. Um, so that's kind of a bummer, but that's okay. Kind of like the Dire Wolf being a more slow, somber version. This is, it's not like super slow, but I would describe it as patient. They're kind of taking their time in the way that they kind of waltz through this song. Very melodic version until the end. And then there's just an absolutely rock and finish to this song, which um, I, I mean, I really liked. I thought that it was a cool kind of way to, you know, ramp up as the song goes on. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes from the drumming comes from Billy, um, who like at the four forty five ish mark kicks it in and then carries it on to the end of the song. Yeah. There's a, something that uh, our friend Zach Cropper, who now just gets a shout out in every episode. Apparently he's like a modern day uncle Kyle in many ways, basically, <laughs> which is, you know, that's warranted. Uh, we're, we're big Cropper heads, <laughs> but one thing that he said about why he loves 72 so much is because he thought that I, I think that this is what he said, that Bill was making more use of his whole drum set in 72 and he stopped relying as much and using the toms as much as 73 and 74 went on. And there are some times in this show where I can see that, especially like the drums in the second set, like the floor tom, he uses a little bit, but but really not very much. It's very snare and cymbal forward. It's kind of interesting. There are some songs that I mean, I think this is a great show for Bill, period. But there are some songs where that's like kind of especially just it especially works. I think that the next song is the first one where I really thought so, Sugary. Um his fills in, in Sugary are are excellent. Just one thing I ask of you. It's just one thing for me. 
just kind of bring it to another level i think rather than it because i mean the songs like sugary bertha um jack straw like songs that they played a lot you can kind of get lost in the like some of them just feel like kind of stock versions and mm-hmm. when there are cool things going on kind of in the auxiliary space like not just jerry shredding or you know <laughs> abundant fill bombs but like you know like you were saying in around and around like what keith is doing on that song or what bill is doing on sugary where it's like oh this is i dig this this is different and i i just i like the way that it adds to the whole texture of what the song sounds like yeah and you talked about the mic problems they kind of followed um with jerry his mic just kind of goes quiet for like 30 or 45 seconds in the beginning beginning of the song but those problems are alleviated by the firm drumming from Billy. Like he helps bring him out, like hold him steady while Jerry gets it figured out. And then it's not an issue at all. Yeah. There are a couple times in the show. Now that you say that, where I feel like Bill kind of has like a more forceful hand. I'm thinking about specifically eyes of the world where it's like the tempo. Well, we'll get there, but yeah, just a good show for Bill in general. Uh, next from Sugary Mexicali Blues. Don't really have a lot about this song. I mean, it's only like three and a half minutes long, pretty tight version. I mean, this is just like not my favorite Grateful Dead song. Yeah, I think this is the first time we talked about this, right? Is it? It could I be. I think so. I think we should just address why neither <laughs> of us really like this song and then move on. Yeah, Bob talking um, about a girl who's just 14. Yeah, not, not a fan <laughs> of that. Um, now, having said that, good drumming and good strumming from Jerry and that's about it. Yeah, fair enough. It's it's one of those things where it's like okay, obviously it's a song, like the lyrics kind of right. hurt. But at the but. same time <laughs> So like, okay. Good morning little schoolgirl, like Pigpen song from a few years before this, right? The song ends with him it's something like and and I didn't care that she was only 17 and then they do the blues ending. And you're like, "Yeah, that's not really great." Why 14? Right? Like, so if he was like, you know, I grabbed a bottle of whiskey and a girl who's just 17, like the song wouldn't lose any A girl who's just 18. Or that even. It's the same number of syllables. (laughs) Girl is just 19. Same thing. Boom. Like, why 14? And, you know, I'm pretty sure in, so 74, Bob was like 23 years old. So, I mean, when he wrote the song, he was probably like 20. Still not okay. No. Uh, um, in any case, we now move on to what for me was the highlight of disc one. Um, here comes sunshine. So the first two minutes I was like, okay, this is a fine version. Like, you know, good. And then the jam opens up and this song becomes like just a a standout moment. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so good. It's about 12 minutes long. This is, uh, I don't think that they played this the prior night. And so this was the first Here Comes Sunshine since Dick's Picks 1, which is pretty much universally viewed as the best Here Comes Sunshine. But this one is tied for second on Heady version, uh, only trailing that Dick's Picks 1 version. Um, and it just, it has a lot of the same energy, but it just, it, it just rocks. I mean, it's, it's cool to have like a 12 minute long jam in the, just tucked right in the middle of set one. And 
you know, we've been listening to, like I said, Europe 72, where that's that function is playing in the band. Right. And so hearing another song that gets that treatment and they just like jam out and and it just that sounds so different from playing in the band. I just I really, really liked. And I, I thought that pretty much everyone sounds good on this song, but it, it definitely is a a Jerry showcase. Um and it's a song that I, I wish they would have played more. Um it was pretty short lived in their live catalog and I just thought this was a, a great version. I was really happy to to have it. Yeah. My one critique of Maybe not this version, just this song. I I loved that funky jam you're talking about. And like, I don't mean funky, like weird. I mean like elements of funk rock. Like there's some stuff that Jerry's doing on the guitar and the jam, where if you were like, this was 30 years in the future, John Frusciante of Red Hot Chili Peppers is, is doing something that sounds kind of similar. Mm-hmm. I didn't like... You know, after about two or three minutes of that funky jam, I didn't like the forced, unnatural transition back to the, like the main melody and the verse. Mm-hmm. It felt like awkward. Like it felt forced. Clunky. Clunky. Yep. Honestly, I would have just tapered out the end of the song, and not gone into like the last two or three minutes of just repeating the melody, the verse, and then like the beginning of another jam to end it. That was my only critique. I, I liked the vocals. I liked Donna backing it up in the chorus. And yeah. I love I loved, loved, loved that funky jam. But the transition out, it, it felt like it felt like the car kinda like slammed on the brakes to make a left turn that it didn't see coming. It was like, Oh, stop, we gotta go back and, and do the main part of the song. Yeah, I mean I can I can see that. Like I said, the beginning I was just kinda like, Okay, this is fine and then it was in the jam in like this when it opens up toward the end, especially the back half, like the last six minutes of the song I thought were just really, really good. You know, maybe they felt the same way because this was the last time they played it until 1992 was this night. Mm, yeah. Um, and then it just it got put on the shelf and didn't come back for 1,200 shows. And Jeez. then they, Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then they played it throughout 92, 3, 4, and 5, but they only played the song live 65 times. And so maybe that's also part of what made me like it so much is that probably the version of the song that I've heard the most, because I like Dick's Picks Volume 1, but I haven't listened to that. Like It's not like I've listened to it 10 times. But I have listened to um, Wake of the Flood. I have that on vinyl, and I've listened to that a number of times. And the way that this song has evolved from the record version is notable, and I I think it sounds better live. And so it's kind of just kind of a treat uh, to hear this version. But different strokes for different folks. Right. I didn't dislike the song. It's just that one like that one moment. I was like ah. Well, that's why it's not number one on a heady version, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'll ding you. <ya. laughs> right.
Um, speaking of Donna's vocals, the next song is Beat It On Down The Line, and she's really involved in the vocals on this version. It sounds great. I mean, I, I like uh, that she's more assertive in this song, and she adds a lot, I think. Uh, a good version, it's just under four minutes long. I think compared to like the Hunter Garcia classics that come before and after, I kind of it just kind of gets lost in the shuffle for me. But I did like Donna's vocals on it. It kind of gets lost in the shuffle because of what comes next, like another Jerry standout ship of fools. Yeah. And so you get the Here Comes Sunshine, Jerry standout, and then beat it on down the line. It just kind of feels forced in there. And then back into Jerry for Ship of Fools. Yeah. Great Ship of Fools. This is only the second version that they played live. So the- it's beautiful. It's fantastic. Yeah, totally agree. So, I mean, it had been introduced to the audience the night before because they played the first live version the night before. Again, the, the album version of the song wouldn't come out for another four months. Um, but yeah, it's a great version. The chorus is more upbeat than it, it would be in later years, especially. And it it's just great. The Shout out to Bill on this song. The rhythm that he's keeping is just like beautifully varied. And this is the song when you and I were talking about this CD the other night, I was like, I don't know how I would like write down what he's doing. It's just, it feels so driven by feel and like the, the way that he's using the bass drum. I mean, it just is awesome and it sounds great. Jerry sounds great singing this song. Uh, and and the music is great. The way that they're the way they're playing. I mean, it's an an awesome song. And another to me high point of of set one is is this song. This was my high point of set one. Was just Jerry's crisp and elegant. The whole band's in sync. The, just the composition is fantastic. And like you said, second time ever they've played this song, and they've already got it figured out. Yeah, I was gonna. You wouldn't you wouldn't know that uh, right. based based on how good it sounds and it's it's cool it's like there are a lot of songs like this that they played live i mean touch of gray they played live for like five years before they put it on wax so to speak but it's cool to hear how this song would evolve in some ways but in others just stay remarkably the same by the time from the mars hotel um happens All that would not sink or swim was just left there to flow. I won't leave you drifting down, but whoa, it makes me wild. With 30 years upon my head to have you call me child. great song uh, the next song is also a, a great one uh it is jack straw good version of jack straw and the way so from ship of fools to the end of of disc one I, I just i just don't think they miss i mean they are they're playing so well the songs that they chose to play just like fit perfectly and it begins with jack straw jerry is playing his ass off on this song i mean he's just like killing it and one thing that I really noticed about this, Phil sounds really good in his supporting vocals on this song. I mean, I know that 
I, I think when people say that his voice like went, it varies. It depends on who you talk to. I think even if you asked Phil, he might give you different answers depending on uh, when you would have asked him throughout time. But yeah, man, this song sounds great. Like the whole band sounds really good on it. My my problem with the song is it's, it's too short. Yeah, it's like a tight five, and <laughs> yeah. it feel, I don't even think they do the whole Jack Straw from Wichita like portion in the second half of the song. They just like cut it out at five minutes and they're on to the next one. Because you're right, they're they're on fire, and then I was like, wait, this song's not over. Oh well, I guess it's over. Yeah, it it, ha- it ends pretty fast. But the next song, so yeah, I agree. I I mean, I would have. I would have liked another three minutes of uh, Jack Straw. <laughs> yeah. Give us the full thing. Um, but from here, they go into Deal. Uh, so you get two Bob Hunter songs in a row and two songs that feel of a piece. Like the Jack Straw Deal combo, it just it feels right <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, there's great, great uh, keys from Keith throughout this version of Deal. And I mean, just an overall, you know, you and I are both big deal fans. I, we've said it before on this show. They just don't miss when it comes to this song. And this song is no different. Right. It, you just sit back and smile when it's on the, the track list. I, I got to go one up. I don't like he's not just great. Like at this point, Keith starts stealing the show. Yeah. With how good his his keys are and the key solo in the second half of the song. I mean, it's it's unreal. And number 43 version on heady version as a keys fan i think it's a little too low like i love when the keys break through and and shine bright yeah 43 is still in the top 10 percent of i mean they played the song 430 times so okay it's but i agree with you i mean i think it should be higher i think it's a great version and especially because you know there's some there's some longer versions of deal I'm not sure how many shorter versions than five minutes there are. Not probably a ton. This is like 455. But like, I'm always amazed in this song when, and Bertha, the same, when they find room in like a five minute song to like really cook. Yeah. They found plenty of room to, to get cooking in this song, especially Keith. And when, when Keith goes on, you know, runs like that, I think that it brings the best out of Jerry. I think that he always loves kind of that interplay with a good, a good uh, pianist. And you can, you can hear that uh, with how he's playing on the back half of the song too. Anything else on, on deal? No, it's going to be kind of the same analysis for the next song, (laughs) promised land. Um, They, they deliver here. And a lot of it is because of what Keith is doing of him. Like, pounding with all his might on the keys and like you talked about jerry coming in with the interplay to just totally ramp it up and bring us to the promised land before this each song they played and it stood on its own and then promised land they play into bertha which they play into greatest story ever told to close out set one and it is a fantastic 15 minutes of music to close set one it feels just so natural to have uh, these three songs like that. The way Jerry's playing around like the 2.15, 2.12 is the time that I wrote down specifically, is my favorite thing he does on any of the Chuck Berry songs. It sounds like he's playing in a carnival funhouse, and I love it. 
<laughs> the um, Dave's picks, sorry, Dick's picks 29, I think, uh, at the Fox Theater from May 77 is another great example of that where it's like, it's just so, it sounds so fun. I just love it. And so when I heard that playing come up, it's, I think, in response to something that Keith is doing, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm all in on this version. <laughs> I just, I thought it was great. Um, so, yeah, I think that it's a great start to a great ending to set one. And then from here, they go into Bertha. The public agrees with you, though, that um, that promised land, number eight on Hetty version. Wow. I actually did not know that. That is um... it's high. Top 10. Yeah, that's good stuff because they played the shit out of that song. <laughs> so um, that you know feels good. Uh, this this little this little segment, "Promised Land," Bertha into Greatest Story, they played it ten times, all between the end of seventy two and the end of seventy four. They played it at uh, during that run at Winterland, um, in at like you know the end of the Grateful Dead, mm-hmm. in, later in seventy four, and it's just. It just works these three songs in a row. Bertha, great transition in. Um, like like I said, this is you know they played it ten times. This was the ninth time that they had done this little transition, so they knew how this transition worked. Ripping hot start and you know awesome job by them at the beginning of the song. Uh, by the end, it's Phil that's stealing the show. I mean, I got I got nothing new to add. That that was my notes exactly. Too. Yeah, yeah. At the end, Phil, it's just like these bubbly bass notes that Phil's playing at the end, and it sounds awesome. Great version of Bertha. And we're so used to hearing Bertha at the beginning of the set that it's cool to hear it um, right at the end especially with um, Greatest Story Ever Told. This was the first of three times they played this song as a set one closer, so not very common at all that you'd get uh, Greatest Story at the end of set one. The the um, Bertha into Greatest Story combo platter, I'm just all for it. They are great companions. And, um, I mean, it just works great high energy way to send the people off this was like as far as the songs they played from Bertha I think we said this a couple episodes ago this was the most common 63 times Bertha into greatest story um and yeah high energy into high energy they just keep it up so three minutes of promised land six of Bertha five and a half of greatest story just a tremendous chunk of music uh to send the people into the set break yeah, and a good bookend, like you get the high, high-energy Bob opener and you get a high-energy Bob closer of set one. Yeah, I mean, Jerry always sounds great. The soloing that he does on with a, with a wah on uh, Greatest Story, I mean, he's just tearing it up, as always. And yeah, again, just a great way to, to close out set one. So big picture thoughts on set one. What did you think about it? And, and disc one, because this is the end of the first of the three discs of this release. Yes, I do. I think... We're getting a lot of, we're getting the preview to a lot of Bob Cowboy songs and a lot of Jerry ballads. 
there's more to come on that, but I think the slower pace of some songs and the ballads from Jerry, particularly Here Comes Sunshine and Ship of Fools are the standouts. Yeah, I agree. I think that those are two the two standout moments from a very good disc one. Disc two is considerably shorter um, than disc one, considerably fewer songs. All of them are mild or at least like somewhat long pretty much but much less songy than disc one and there's a little twist in disc two that i know annoyed you (laughs) deeply (laughs) (laughs) the end of disc two is the last two songs are johnny be good and and we bid you good night which was the second encore of this show they didn't have room to include that on disc three and so they stuffed it at the end of disc two so that we could get the whole concert you were pretty annoyed by that. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand it, right? Like the the transition from He's Gone into Truckin', which begins disc three. You don't want to chop that off by putting He's Gone onto disc two. Right. But I mean, me and my... We'll talk about these good transitions later. I don't know. It's not worth putting a fourth disc in here. It's just... It's like the the move and here comes sunshine back to the verse it's just a little clunky okay yeah i i agree with that and so we'll get into it when we get to me and my uncle but i just wanted to set that out for the listeners um so disc two begins with road jimmy i I told you this when we were talking about this and and i didn't know this i didn't know this is like one of your favorite dead songs (laughs) yeah so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna sit back and let you (laughs) take this as the the row head (laughs) So I love this song. I love Ro Jimmy. I know that Jerry loved this song too. He once said that it was his favorite Grateful Dead song to play. And Bill in his book, he talks about Ro Jimmy and said, it's a weird song and it takes a while to like wrap your head around it. But once you figure it out, it's a joy to play. And he's definitely right. I've mentioned on this show before, I'm a novice drummer. I'm just learning how to play. And you know, when you start playing a new instrument, you want to play the songs that your favorite bands play. And so I want to be able to play along with Grateful Dead songs naturally. You can't in the beginning. You can't play along with anything. It's just like, how do I figure out how to keep a regular beat? But Road Jimmy, once you figure out how the beat works, it's actually not that difficult to play along with. And it's fun because it's not, you know, there, I mean, obviously you can play like any song to like kind of the classic drum beat, like the classic four by four. Road Jimmy is slightly different in a more fun way. It's like a reggae-ish, reggaeton-ish beat where the emphasis is on the, the third count in a in the, you know, one and two and three and four. Whereas most others, like you get an emphasis on a two and a four or a one and a three or something like that. This is just a super fun song to play along with. But playing along with the Grateful Dead in their two drummer iterations is really, I mean, it's a fool's errand. Um, so I've listened to a ton of one drummer Ro Jimmy's that I've, you know, tried to play along with, with the song in my headphones while I'm playing drums. So I love this song. And, um, this is just a good version because I'm so familiar with one drummer versions. I'm really used to Donna, um, her involvement in this song, which I think adds a lot, the way that she and Jerry kind of, they're, they're singing together with the, with the chorus. As a result, I don't have like a ton of notes on this song. I'll admit I was playing, I was listening to it a lot while I was on my drum set. Um, 
I will say they played the song 277 times. This was the third and final time it was a set opener. All three were at the beginning of mm. set two. And um, I just, I enjoyed this version a lot, but I don't have any specific reasons why. I think just because it's a run, one drummer road Jimmy, I was predisposed to loving it. <laughs> you touched on my one note, which was that we in the past have talked about how we prefer the harmonization with Donna and Bob because the lower end of Bob and the higher end of Donna meld together very well. I liked how Jerry and Donna worked together here. Contrary to what we usually say, the two of them blended beautifully here. Yeah, they really do. It just, it sounds great. And it, it does, it is like a ballady, slow-ish song, like you were saying, kind of we would get a lot more of and we will continue to, but just a nice song. And I, I really like, I really like it there. It's, you know, when we were talking to Howard and he was saying that the thing about how movement is kind of essential to the Grateful right. Dead, th- this song would be a great song to walk to. It's a great song to drive to probably not one that you'd want to like, you know, get after in the gym to, but um, <laughs> as far as like more, you know, easygoing movement, this would be a good one good one for that and really this whole disc for the most part would be kind of a good disc to walk to i i ripped the this cd and disc three to my computer so that i could put them on my phone and so that i could put the second encore where it belongs at the end and i i've listened to it a lot um in the last couple days it just it just really works for me the second and third discs from Road Jimmy, we get a weather report suite, 19 minutes long. The whole thing. The whole thing. Whole kit and caboodle. You get the prelude, part one, let it grow. This this song, you know, kind of like Here Comes Sunshine, it really locks you into the time that you're in when you're listening to this album. It's, you know, it's 73, 74 dead because that's that's it for weather report suite. They didn't, they didn't play the whole thing really after that. And so... They only played it about 50 times, the whole suite live. They they never brought it back after the hiatus at all, not a single time. But they did play Let It Grow throughout their entire tenure. That came right back after the hiatus. I think the longest break that they ever took between Let It Grows was like 80 shows right around the time Brent joined the band. But they played that all the way through 95. They keep playing it today. Um, Bob Bob does. He uh, keeps playing it today. I gotta say though, I'm a fan of the longer journey through the whole suite. I I like it quite a I bit am too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's the first part is very mellow and very pleasant, which was and, nice after Road Jimmy. And I, and I really enjoyed the slide guitar and the spacey keys in the the prelude in part one. Yeah, I agree. I thought that the slide sounded really good. I was I actually read on Twitter earlier this week someone who was like kind of taking a knock at Jerry's slide playing, which, I mean, I don't know. Some people just don't like the way slide sounds, which is fair. But it sounds pretty good. Like, it doesn't sound like he's, you know, missing, you know? No, no, like, no, no. It, it, I, I feel like he, he had it kind of down at this point. And so I think that it, it really adds a lot, that that slide playing and that space to do that and to, to kind of go out into the wilderness a little bit. And I also think that it makes the payoff of Let It Grow a little bit more impactful, 
when when Bob finally, you know, get I shouldn't say finally. I mean, I, I enjoyed the lead up to it as well. But when he does get into the let it grow part and, you mm-hmm. know, with Donna and with that playing and with kind of the more. Uh, I don't know, like climactic uh, playing that comes during the let it grow part. I think that it it has a little bit more just oomph to it when you've gone through the whole weather report suite journey. Yeah, and, and the let it grow part here is truly beautiful the, with the stand-up being the rhythm guitar that Bob is playing is like jaw-dropping. This is like his, in my opinion, this is his high point of the show, is him on this, you know, 18-minute journey. do the crunchy rock portion of let it grow that i really like so i was like a little down on that that's the 18 minutes wound down i was like oh they're not gonna go into that um but that that shouldn't take away from how pretty and how pleasant this entire run is yeah the more the like really dramatic part of let it grow that they would play a lot in later days and still play (laughs) um yeah i agree uh, I, I think that I think this is one of the best songs that uh, Bob ever wrote and I, I, I think that he he really crushes it yeah I, I think you're right from both a like a complex but also it's like Bob's terrible. easy to listen to yes that's that's a great analogy it's not like victim or the crime which we've talked about before like being very angular and very difficult but it's it's complex but smooth yeah, I think the the reason why they didn't play the prelude and weather report suite part one in later days is because it, there's a lot going on. And Bob, I mean, I don't know. I've heard Bob like complain that the band didn't want to practice his songs very much in the later <laughs> days. And so they just like kind of stopped playing them, but <laughs> like his longer songs. But yeah, I mean, good version. I was really happy to hear this. It's been, uh, because I, like I said, I haven't listened to a ton of 74, especially lately. It's been a while since I've heard a full weather report suite. And, uh, it was a welcome, welcome little, little kind of part of this second disc. A really welcome part of the second disc is the next song from weather, weather report suite. They go right into Stella blue. I've said before, this is my wife's favorite Grateful Dead song. And so I love when I get a Stella Blue on a CD because it gives me license to call her into the room and say, listen to this song. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about this? Is this a good Stella Blue? What's your thought? And this was a good Stella Blue. Yeah, it was. Her description was, this is a nice version. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it is a nice Uh, version. I'm going to go a step above that. I think it's a very nice version. This is another Jerry Ballad on a night full of them, but he had he had the voice for it tonight. His voice was just excellent, and so I understand why he was wanting to crank him out. Yeah. This is one of those Jerry ballads, though, or, and this is one of those Jerry ballads where as his voice got more grizzled, this song sounded beautiful in a different way. I really like a lot of early 90s versions of Stella Blue with kind of the more grizzled version of his voice. 
but this is just a beautiful version. I mean, it's interesting to me because the Jerry Ballad slot hadn't really been like set in stone at this point in the seventies. And so it, this is, it kind of makes sense as a Jerry Ballad slot because it comes after a big, a big jam, a big, you know, musical song, big instrumental flourishy song, uh, weather report suite, but it's the third song of set two and not the third to last song of set two. Like it might be if this were 10 years down the road. And so it was just like, I was just nice. And I, I do think that the Jerry ballad is kind of a tough thing to really follow it or it can be. Mm-hmm. And so I really liked the way that they constructed set two uh, on this night because after this song, they take a break. This get, song gets a huge applause and then they go into uh, big river, a Johnny cash cover that Bob just knocks out of the park. I think you're a pretty big fan of this song. Aren't you? Um, uh, no, not really. On no. on uh, Dick's Picks forty one, there was a uh, Big River that I remember you really liking. Yeah, I think I liked that version, and also I I like this version, but I don't I don't go and seek this song out. Like I wouldn't say this is a a top song for me. I mean, to be fair, are there any like Bob Cowboy songs where you're like, <laughs> I'm gonna go listen to the ten best, you know? Well, New Minglewood, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't know. That's not as cowboy as a as a Johnny Cash cover. No, that that's a good point. I I enjoyed this version, I think, for different reasons than the reasons on Dick's Picks 41. Reason, singular, it was Keith. Like, Keith is just, he just refuses to quit. He's just not <laughs> stopping. And, I mean, what else can you say? Like, he just, he's going for it. And this was the number 17 version on Heady version, and I think it's that high because it's completely because of Keith. It's interesting to me that you, so yeah, I mean, I, I agree, but it's interesting to me that you made the new Minglewood comparison because as you've told us, the keys are what makes or breaks That's right. Minglewood, right? Yep. And so maybe we're finding something similar with mm. Bobby Cowboy songs. Maybe I'm in denial. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but do you, do you find that? Do you find that on the Bob Cowboy songs, or like the Bobby Cowboy tunes, you're like... Um, oh, when the keys are good, I, you, you enjoy it more. Yes. Yeah. Now that you've shattered that glass for me. Absolutely. <laughs> That's um, interesting. Cause I, I didn't hate the Mexicali blues back on set one because yeah. Keith had like this cool saloon sound mm-hmm. to his piano. And I was like, Oh, that just fits. Yeah. No, I, I, I can definitely yeah, see that. Maybe that's, maybe that's the, maybe that's the X factor. I actually did not realize that this was the number 17 version on, on Hetty version um, until you said that. And that's that's kind of cool. They're, they played this song 400 times, so there are ample versions yeah. for people to like. And um, I think that that speaks to what you're saying, how good Keith sounds on it. Same with the next song. Keith destroys <laughs> Ramble on Rose. Uh, Ramble on Rose yeah. is a song that I've talked about how much I enjoy in the past on this show. And this version, I mean... The first time I heard it, I was like, eh. I mean, compared to like the Weather Report and Stella Blue and the fact that I adore Ro Jimmy, I was like, yeah, it's okay. And then I listened to it again and was like, that's actually a, quite a good version. And then I listened to it a third time and was like, Keith is destroying this song. There's like this twinkly thing he's doing around 435. Yep. 
the little flourishes in the background at the 445, 450 mark. Is, yeah. It yep. sounds so good. tell that he's playing with with some real confidence you know it's great yeah. great backing vocals on this song too don't you think i mean it's like the the full so like jerry is always like singing his heart out on ramble on rose uh that's something that i really i like about it. you could feel the effort in his voice and his voice starts to falter a little bit in the last verse of this of this version but you can he's like really putting his energy into it putting his back into it and that's something that i like about it um, but I, I really like the uh, the backing vocals on this version. Um, again, it's, you know, Phil, you can hear him. He sounds really good, and it adds to the texture of it. But Donna and Bob, too, I mean, it's just it just sounds good. This was another song where, like, they had mic trouble. Like, at the 92nd mark, his, his mic dies or cuts out. I, I don't know what was going on, but he, you lose him for a, a good couple seconds. But he, he makes up for it on that solo. Like, Jerry was trying to keep up with Keith and bring the heat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, so uh, for me, a nice version of, of Ramble on Rose. Then the next song, Me and My Uncle. So I think that this is a notably good short version of this song. It's just under four minutes long. I actually had to add this song, this version, to Heady version because it wasn't on there. So it has exactly mm. one upvote for me. <laughs> um, I think that's unfair. I think that this song should have gotten upvotes before this. I, I think that... I, I don't know. I, I've talked about this before. I think that when the Grateful Dead are playing and it feels like they could just tumble off a cliff at any moment, that like danger is great and really compelling. And in the middle of this song, it feels that way. It feels like they are just like going for it and it could it could spiral off the rails at any given moment and then they, they catch themselves and, and you know, keep it going. But I, I thought that this song deserved... Uh, some heady version considerations. So yeah, I submitted it. I have no regrets about that. <laughs> nor, nor should you. It's, it's, a, I wasn't as high, to, high on it as you. I thought it was a nice tight version. I really liked the end of it. And this is where I get into, I get to complain a little bit because the transition to he's gone is actually really pretty. Yeah. But you've got to like eject and change the discs. Uh, well, here's the thing. So I know this because I added these songs to my computer. So it's it's not a transition. It's not like they play me and my uncle into He's Gone. It's just that they're noodling around with He's Gone for like a, a good right. 10 seconds before it comes in. Here's what's jarring about it. So I added it to so that I could, like I said, move this Johnny Be Good and Bid You Good Night to the end of disc three. And the way that they produce this, you get the uh, He's Gone little interlude at the end of me and my uncle and then it fades out and then you get the same thing at the beginning of of he's gone and so uh. it it's like when you have it that way it, it's like a total stop so i'm gonna have to figure out how to splice off like the last 15 seconds or the first 15 seconds of he's gone because it, it really takes you out of it which is kind of, kind of a bummer <laughs> um because he's gone i mean then they from he's gone they actually it is you know 
one song into the next, you get the little, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. what's it called? Greater than symbol. But yeah, it does sound nice. Like it sounds cool the way that they're noodling around. And then like when you, when you put on disc three and you get that beginning part of he's gone, it is cool. And it's like, I, I like that. I like that. There's like a little bit of a tuning thing going on there. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. I, I wish they could have found a way to do it. But you know what I've always thought would be cool that I, I don't know why they don't do. I wish that when they put out these releases, they would also give you a digital version. So the, mm. like, I, I mean, I had to buy an external CD drive so that I could put Grateful Dead music onto my, <laughs> onto my computer. Cause my computer doesn't have a disc drive. Most, you know, modern day computers don't. It would be a nice touch if they did that. If they, you know, a lot of CDs, like if you buy like the last couple of, CDs that aren't Grateful Dead that I've bought, it comes with a code to download a digital version too. And I would just wish they would do that. <laughs> I don't know. If you disagree with me out there, if you're one of our listeners and you think that that would maybe bastardize it in some way, let us know. I would I would definitely be interested in hearing a counter argument. So Someone wrote on the dead.net forums. It was like, he's gone truck and drums. The other one classic. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think I've ever heard Is that. It? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I did uh, the research and um, this second set jam, uh, they, they actually added eyes to that too. Like it was like, he's gone truck and drums. Other one eyes classic. And I was like, that's weird. I don't think that's true. Uh, there are, 22 examples of he's gone to truck into drums. So like that's okay. you know, a, a big one. But I only found four examples of this specific second set jam of he's gone truck and drums, other one eyes, or to give them the benefit of the doubt, he's gone truck and no drums, the other one and eyes. Because a lot of times the drums could just be along the other one. Sure. Yeah. So to that person, maybe it's classic to you because you were at all four of those shows. If so, that's awesome. Good job. I mean, great stuff. <laughs> but this is not, I mean, they didn't play this all the time. And I really like this this journey that they take us on through these songs. I thought they were really good. He's gone. What well, let's start at the beginning. What did what did you uh what did you think of this version? I thought what stood out to me was the guitar work on both ends. Bob and Jerry were really, really in sync. And this is a beautiful, sweet song. Sometimes less is more, right? Like this is a beautiful, sweet song where sometimes doing less on the drums is a good thing. And I think One Drummer Dead here contributes to that. There's like that smooth, soft rhythm on the ride cymbal and not doing too much was a good thing. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. They, I mean, Bill basically fades out completely in that middle you know, nothing's going to bring him back breakdown mm -hmm. just, and it's just great. Um, so I like the vocal ad lib that Donna adds right before the first solo break. I think that that's good and kind of a nice little touch from her on this song. But what I really liked about this song is the post singing, like ending jam from about 10 minutes in for like the last four minutes of the song. Yeah. I called that the return to force. Yes. It was fantastic. Yeah, that's a great way of describing it. You have this like extra long, nothing's going to bring him back breakdown, uh, which is very like the the part the song up until then is 
kind of jazzy and very piano forward. And then at 9.50, Jerry just explodes out of this, you know, quiet part. And it's just shredding. <laughs> I mean, for like the next few minutes. His tone is unique here. It sounds different than it had sounded on, especially like uh, Stella and Remlon Rose. It's a little bit more raw to me, and it, it just sounds awesome. Bob's got some nice supporting rhythm. Phil is, you know, bubbling up all around him, just dropping bombs left and right by the end of this song. And then Phil takes takes that energy that he's bringing and just you know, leads the charge into trucking. That like that starts bubbling up with like a couple seconds left, and then he just brings them crashing into, not not crashing. It's not like it's you know abrupt, but there's just like this crackling energy at the beginning of trucking. It sounds awesome, and um, I actually think that that transition is the is the high point of this version of trucking that comes next. I guess before we get into that, anything else on he's gone for you? No, nothing else. And yeah, Phil had us grooving right away into trucking. I don't know if I've ever heard Bob nail the speedy syllables of the lyrics as well as he did here. Did you notice that? Like there was no mumbling, no brushing over words. I like he he nailed the lyrics in the beginning anyway. Yeah, I thought for a second you were going to say, I don't know if I've ever heard Bob nail the lyrics to this song. And I was thinking, yeah, fair, actually. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it, it's tricky. Uh, it's hard. It's hard because it's so fast. Yeah, he I, he said on the, the Good Old Grateful Dead cast episode about this song, he thinks that Bob Hunter wrote these lyrics specifically to fuck with him because they're so <laughs> fast and complicated. And um, so, yeah, there's a reason why it's tough. He... He struggles with the lyrics in the middle. Um, in the beginning, though, yeah, he is uh, he is pretty good. Then he gets a little bit lost in the sauce toward the middle <laughs> of the song. <laughs> but that's okay. That's character. I mean, it's kind of what makes this song what it is. Yeah. The post-singing jam really knocks you off your feet on this song. Yeah. What Jerry is doing on the guitar, man, is incredible. Yeah, I mean, he's just a shredder on this song. This song and He's Gone, just what he does in those like last... You know, the last like four minutes, like I said, if he's gone in the last three ish of this song, it's just tremendous. I mean, a masterclass in being lead guitarist from trucking into drums. I don't have a ton to say about this. It's it's pretty fun, especially the the other one lead in at the end. Um, I do think that it's pretty snare and cymbal centric. There's some stuff on the toms, not really much on the floor tom, like that big bass sound, but it sounds good. Yeah, I, the one note that I had just kind of confirms what you were talking about earlier. There's a nice Tom presence in the first 30 seconds, and then it's like all snare for the rest of the drums. Yeah. Which isn't much. bad. It's not bad at all. It's fun to listen to, but it's kind of like what you and, by extension, Dr. Cropper were saying. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that 
that was i was actually thinking about zach's point when i heard this i was like oh yeah he did say that he was less reliant on the toms as the 70s or as the end of one drummer dead was coming so from drums uh they go into the other one this the other one they go way out to space on this song it i wrote that this song has big dark star energy actually um i really think that it does i think that how spacey they get not that they didn't get really spacey on the other one i mean they did but there's just something about the vibe it's uh inexplicable but reminded me of a lot of the europe 72 dark stars they go just i mean again just way out into space and then around like the 1350 mark did you catch what they were doing well yes twofold first bob sounds like he's almost playing me and my uncle and then jerry starts to play slipknot right and there's a help slip jam yeah nestled in there and so jerry just like leads the whole band into a slipknot jam and but like before that i really was listening to bob and thinking like is he playing me and my uncle right now like that is odd and then Jerry goes just like right into that Slipknot jam, which is cool. I think that they did that, not, not maybe not regularly, but I think before Slipknot earned its place in between Help on the Way and Franklin's Tower, I think that they would do that on the other one sometimes, but it, it, it was a welcome addition to this version. one minute long the other one a big old jam um and i think that it's it's kind of additive to have uh eyes coming right after it you basically have 35 minutes of just like jamming between the other one and um and eyes and then especially if you take like the last the the three and a half minutes of drums and the last few minutes of trucking you got like 45 minutes of just of just jamming um which was great big second set jam yeah huge there's there's one verse and one chorus in the other one yeah i know they they were just so happy or i not maybe i shouldn't impart emotions but i think they were just content being out to space for a lot of that song it's a weird like the 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 tiger moment in that jam it's kind of odd it's unique but it's it's cool. De- definitely worth it uh, to use our friend Jim in Maryland's vernacular. Oh, yeah. I mean, you were... This truly was a journey in the other one. It wasn't like a long singular jam. There were exit ramps and stops and, <laughs> and other songs in there. I mean, it was it was worth it for sure. A true journey. Um, next, like I said, Eyes of the World. It's like 15 minutes long. Uh, this one only has 19 upvotes on Heady Version, which... You know, it does make it the second most upvoted song from this show behind um, Here Comes Sunshine, which has 80 votes, a lot. But I think that this is maybe slightly underrated. I mean, when you look at the the top of the charts for Eyes of the World, most of them are from the late 70s. Three of the top five are from 74. 
or I shouldn't say late seventies. I should say late 74 is what I meant to say. So 74 is a year that people love in eyes of the world land. Um, I think it's because of the jazz influence and the way that it sounds in some of those late 74 versions is really, really great. But this one does have some similar energy at the beginning. This playing is just like the note that I wrote was light as a feather. Like it's just very light and airy. And then maybe, maybe too light because the post the jam right after the first verse is kind of sleepy. I think it's pretty, pretty slow. And this is the song that I was thinking about earlier when I said that Bill kind of like leads them to like Mm. his tempo. Bill and Jerry really pick up the tempo in the, in the second verse and the jam that comes after that. And then they are just, they really get cooking at that point and, uh, and really take us into a, a, I think a really great version of this song and a great end to the, the second set jam. I like this version quite a bit. I do think that it maybe deserves a little bit more love. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this. There there are a couple songs when we do these recordings and take these notes where I get lazy and I just close my eyes and sit back and enjoy the ride. And Eyes of the World was the one from the show where I did that. Jerry's first guitar solo, you know, pulled me in and then I just sat back, enjoyed the ride. I was... I was thrilled hearing everything that was going on. The whole band stirring it up, coming together. So kind of like you with Road Jimmy. I don't have a lot of notes because I was just, just I was just it. liking it. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So that ends the big second set jam, and then we get uh, one more Saturday night to close out the main portion of the show. Kind of a classic show ender, and it was a Saturday night, so you know, chalk. Really, I, I like the beginning of this song. It's got like a slinky beginning to it that I think is kind of cool. And Billy is just like really riding the snare, which gives it a different sound to the One More Saturday Nights that I'm used to right now because we've been so deep in Europe 72. That that real like, you know, driving snare rhythm that Bill starts us off with uh, was really, I thought, just different from what I'm used to and really great. But, you know, just a, a good way to end set two. Yeah, the... His snare roll, coupled with Keith's piano slide, like going into the second half of the song, that was really fun to listen to. That was a standout of this song. They had that down because it was a similar thing to what you hear on Bertha. And it just like, they didn't, it's not like Keith was doing it on every song, but when he did do it and, you know, when Bill joined in on the fun, it just sounds great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it didn't get old or repetitive. It was just, it was nice. Yeah. Okay, so then uh, you get the first encore, Casey Jones. So at the end of this song, Jerry says, have a good night. But then they come back again for a second encore. Not a, not a thing that they did all that often, um, a two encore night. And so I thought that that was kind of cool. I, I don't really, I just don't really have a lot on Casey Jones. I feel like this song is, I mean, to me, kind of like Direwolf. There's some like standout live versions, but again, it's like the live version is I mean, the album cut is so great. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that everyone in the barn was pumped when it came on. 
mm-hmm. like they get to hear a you know a, a classic and a hit. You know, I was happy to have it on the disc and I was happy to hear it, but there wasn't anything that really like jumped out at me. I don't I don't think for this Casey Jones. I just had Bob sounded good on the rhythm guitar and the backing vocals. Like this is a good good showcase of his supporting role. Other than that, fine version of a fun song. Yeah. So then, as I said, even though Jerry says goodnight, they come back for a second encore, which was just lovely. You get a Johnny Be Good. Uh, uh, the third Chuck Berry cover that we had started the show with Around and Around. <laughs> then, then you got a Promise Land at the end of set one. And now you have, as <laughs> as uh, Rob and Steve on 36 from the Vault would say, a Triple Berry. You have the third Chuck Berry song, <laughs> uh, Johnny Be Good. Um, if I was going to rank the berries, I'd put this one at the bottom, frankly. I thought that around and around because it was the set opener and that made it a little bit different. Um, I thought that that was quite good. As we said, I think the promise land was like a standout promise land and this just felt like a stock Johnny be good. Yeah, I agree with that. I understand why they played it because it adds to the majesty of one of our favorites and we bid you good night, which is how they really closed the show. And it probably would have felt a little bit discordant and, just weird if they would have come back out for a second encore and gone just right into and we bid you good night like you need a lead into that yeah i i agree with that but it's like maybe just do casey jones into bid you good night <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if we needed a third chuck berry song yeah i, I mean i'm not complaining because uh, why not give keith a, a song with a piano solo to cap off the 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 Keith God show you know extravaganza that's been going on all night long like he just just more fantastic stuff and so why not do a song where you can just let him show off to to really cap off the night the the fact that he does have like a solo does make it slightly different than most Johnny B Goods but I mean we we've just heard it a lot and it you know it's on there's a lot of it on Europe 72. Uh, there's just a lot of it in general. And so, you know, I, I was like, all right, it's whatever. Uh, but then, and we bid you good night. The, the true capper to the show, I thought it was great. Jerry starts into it before the last notes of Johnny B. Good are even done echoing off the amplifiers and he's right into it. I love Donna's additions to the song. Me too. Yep. Very just like, sweet and it's nice to add a counterpoint to the vocals that jerry phil and bobby are you know we're so used to on bid you good nights it was just really nice i I really liked having her um kind of ad-libbing over them in the in the mix so i i thought this was a good version where does this where does this stand for you in bid you good nights upper middle of the pack i thought it was a good version i thought what donna brought to the table was fantastic Uh, it's number 21 on heady version so i think i think that's that's appropriate like upper that's top third top Uh, third yeah they played it 60 something times so that makes sense they i don't know i it was like after this pretty much they only broke it out on special occasions kind of like that was this was the last song they played uh at their run at winterland later this year when, before they went on the hiatus, which is mm-hmm. you know kind of fitting. appropriate, yeah. yeah. 
And then the next two times they played it were both New Year's shows and the the you know it was New Year's 60, 76 and New Year's 78 at that closing of Winterland show, which makes it a song that they played at like 5.30 in the morning as Bill Graham's getting ready to serve everyone breakfast. And so it's it's like, it, it felt like at this point they only broke the song out for special occasions. And I wonder, you know, people talk about in the 80s, there would be shows where it was like, oh, I feel like a morning dew coming on. Like this, this show feels like a morning mm. dew show because they're crushing it right now. And people would like call that. And it feels like this might have been the same thing where it's like they knew that they were playing well and it was kind of a special thing. They hadn't played in almost two months. And it's a Saturday night. Why not? Why not bid them good night? Um, so I, I just, I, because of that and like the fact that this song was not played that often, I think this is the first disc that I own where they play bid you good night so i'm happy to add it to my oh. grateful dead collection nice nice so that's the show what do you got dave what what how, how should we land this plane well i think i know your answer but if you had to pick one song to bring with you from this show yeah what is it obviously johnny be good uh, um <laughs> <laughs> um so as much as I I think that the second set jam is excellent, I mean I we've let each other take China Riders and stuff like yes, that. True, true. We're true. not getting away with taking five songs. That's no. too much. <laughs> so from this show, I'm gonna take Here Comes Sunshine. Didn't play it that often. This was the last time they played it in the '70s. As I said, uh, I think that it's a, a good version and a unique song that we. We don't get that often. So give me Here Comes Sunshine. What are you taking? I'm also going to take a Jerry Ballad. I'm also going to take a song off disc one. But it's not Here Comes Sunshine. It's That Ship of Fools is what I'm taking with me. Yeah. It's a great one. It's cool that like we have this weird little bookend. Not bookend. That's not right. But like I've got the last Here Comes Sunshine of the 70s. You've got the second. You know, I'm I'm hitting this song at the end of its the end of its run. This is like the completed version almost you could think of um, with this band because when it would come back with Vince on the keys and you've got the second Ship of Fools. It has, the album hasn't even come out yet. You get it in its kind of like primordial form, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. When one door closes, another opens kind of vibe. There you go. So thank you all for listening. Our next show, I believe, is going to be with our friend Grateful Seconds talking about the show that he was at in 1976 where the dead brought back St. Stephen and just played an overall phenomenal show. So if you are looking for some good Grateful Dead music to listen to between now and then, check out that that show from 1976. It's a great one. Any final notes, Dave, before we... Before we no? Molly wanted to say goodbye. <laughs> She wanted to chime in. No, nothing from me. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we will, just like the Grateful Dead on February 23rd, 1974, bid you good night. Lay down, my dear I love you, oh, but Jesus loves you the best, and I'll bid you good night, good night, good night, and 
bid you good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.